Thank you, Julia, for reading the scriptures to us. And uh, you'll see the reason that we've uh, uh, chosen or looked at these uh, scriptures as we uh, uh, move with our message this evening. So I don't know about you, but uh, you notice that uh, sometimes um, as you're walking along the street, you see people, uh, women more so than men, uh, they will be wearing a cross on a chain around their neck. Uh, Lots of men do. Um, Lots of the people that you see wearing these crosses uh, you discover that when, you, when they talk to you, there's obviously no evidence of salvation. There's no evidence of having come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because their language, the words we say, tell people a great deal about us. You don't have to say very much before somebody is able to say, oh, now this person's different because from their language, I can tell that there is the work of the Holy Spirit that's taken place. But somebody who wears a cross might blaspheme, for example, and you think to yourself, now what a contradiction that's taking place there. Why is it that people have a cross around their necks? Why is it that um, uh, men as well will often wear crosses? And as we walk around the streets, we often see uh, crosses in different places, quite often outside churches, or maybe on the spire of a church you'll see a cross Uh, When you go to Europe, for example, where there are many old churches, um, the UK is a good example, you'll often find that there is a cross either outside of them or on the top. Uh, Maybe in the yard of the church you will see something that uh, depicts um, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the symbol of the cross is everywhere, but I don't know if you've ever thought to yourself, why the cross? I mean, if you were French, perhaps you could give your girlfriend the model of a little guillotine to hang around her neck. (laughs) Uh, Or maybe if you're American, you could give a little model of an electric chair to your girlfriend to hang around her neck, couldn't you? Because these are all methods of execution. Perhaps a row of little soldiers with a firing squad. Now, if if your boyfriend gives you something like that, you need to think very seriously about whether to continue the relationship because uh, uh, there's something not right in that. So what has the cross got that the guillotine hasn't got, that the electric chair hasn't got. Well, the cross, as we see it and as we recognize it, is very clearly the symbol that depicts the Christian faith because as we sung in that hymn earlier, at the cross, at the cross, I first met the Lord, you know, this is beginning to help us to understand that. So we recognize that the cross is an important symbol. Now, our fellowship, we've got a little cross there, that's it. We don't have a cross on the outside at all. Uh, You can go into some churches, again, if we refer back to our time in Europe, we went into particularly some Catholic churches, and one of the saddest things is to see what's called a crucifix, which is a cross, but it still has an image, an effigy of Christ on the cross. Now, why do we not have a crucifix in our Protestant churches? Well, the very simple reason is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ is risen. He's not on the cross. He is risen from the dead, and so the cross is empty. And that is an important reminder for us to realize that whilst it points to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, it does not in any way uh, think (coughs) (coughs) that uh, our Lord Jesus is still on the cross because he isn't, he's in heaven, and he's praying for us now as we meet together and as we live our lives. So during the course of the next uh, few weeks, uh, I'm hoping it won't be uh, next week or possibly the week after because of this uh, surgery that I'm undergoing and again thanking David and Albert and others who are speaking uh, to allow me to, uh, to have time to recuperate from this. 
But uh, as soon as we get back, I want to continue. And I thought to myself, well, shall I have an introduction this evening to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ or not? And I thought, yes, we will. And then what we will do is to take this up uh, when we get going in, uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks' time. But that doesn't stop David from talking about the cross or Albert talking about the cross in between because the cross is indeed central to our faith as believers and uh, we need to um, always uh, understand what took place. So a, a question for you. Was it God's intention from the beginning that Jesus should go to the cross? Was it God's intention from the foundation of the world that Jesus should go to the cross? I don't want you to shout out any answers on this particular point at this particular moment, although if you want to, I guess there's nothing stopping you <laughs> uh, from doing that. But I want to talk about the cross this evening, uh, perhaps from the perspective of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and maybe that's not a view that we would take very often. Uh, we're going to try and look at the view that our Lord, uh, sorry, that God had of the cross as well. And if you could imagine looking down on that scene, you know, what was it? that God saw, and what are the implications for us? But this evening, I just want to try and talk about the beginning, if you like. Where did it all start? Now, many people have considered this question over the last two millennium. And the answer that they've often come up with is the incorrect answer. I, I think we have to understand that the Roman form of execution was gruesome. It was terrible. It was designed to cause maximum pain. I don't want to dwell on this too much because there's some younger folks here, but I think it's important that we understand that this was an awful thing. The Romans were specialists at it. The soldiers that, I mean, can you imagine putting someone on a cross? I have trouble stepping on an ant walking down the street. <laughs> but the cross was spoken of in the Old Testament. It was talked about a tree. And so we see that the Old Testament matches up so clearly all the way through, we're going to talk about that in just a moment, with what took place in the New Testament. Now, I'm very conscious that you might be here this evening and you've never really thought about the cross of Christ. You've seen it as being um, an item of jewelry, but it's never dawned on you as to what it really means. It's never dawned on you as to what the implications of the cross of Christ are. And maybe you've never thought to yourself what it was that our Lord himself thought, what he saw, what he prepared for, as he went to the cross. And so, as I say, many people have considered this question and they've come up with the wrong answer. Even pastors and preachers have come up with the wrong answer and they will say, well, of course Jesus never intended to die. That, that wasn't how it was supposed to be. In fact, the whole of the gospel story was a story of failure, wasn't it? Because the failure was that Jesus died. The victory was in his death. But looking at it from the outside, that's how people will view the, or that's how people often view these things. There was a theologian, apologies that he was British, but he was, Dr. Leslie Weatherhead. And he made this statement. He says, Was it God's intention from the beginning that Jesus should go to the cross? 
I think the answer to that question must be no. I don't think Jesus thought that at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus came with the intention that men and women should follow him, not kill him. Friends, that's what Satan wants you to think. Because he is determined to take away the emphasis of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life and in your heart. And if he can do anything to try and get you to think that this was failure, then he's won a victory in your life. I remember a girl at uh, uh, the Baptist church that uh, I grew up in. Um, her name was Julie. And uh, she was, the thing that was interesting about Julie is she was only about that tall. <laughs> and when she came to give her testimony, uh, it was a church with about a thousand people sat in it, and it was rammed on that particular baptismal Sunday. They had to have a little box for her to stand on because there was no way she could see over the top of the pulpit. She was 17 years old. She wasn't from a Christian family. And she stood on the little box, and she looked at all these people. She was shaking and she said, I was brought up to believe by my mum and dad that Jesus failed because he died. And she said, I'm stood here now to tell you that he won the victory because he died. And he rose again. And I am being baptized today to demonstrate what Christ has done for me. And if you've not been baptized as a believer by full immersion into the water... I want to encourage you to think about this very carefully in your life in the days that lie ahead. You see, Jesus chose to die. Um, Jesus was there at creation. Hands that flung stars into space to a cruel, cruel nail surrendered. So Jesus knew right back from the beginning exactly what was taking place, what was going to be taking place. And the verses that we've read together talk about that and we'll explain them in just a few moments. But the lie that Satan wants you to believe is that the death of Jesus on the cross meant Jesus had failed in his mission to save the world. But friends, this evening I come to you and I have to explain and state clearly that the idea of Jesus not knowing about the cross before he chose to be born into this world is wrong. The concept that the cross was some sort of afterthought, that things had gone wrong and it was designed to be a, a, a sort of like a sticking plaster for the problem or some sort of human accident is wrong. In our Bible readings, we've read together just a couple of statements, and there are many that we could have chosen from that clearly show that the cross, terrible though it was, was intended to happen. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We read those scriptures together. And Peter, in his message on the day of Pentecost, affirmed this truth when he said that Jesus was delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. Acts 2, verse 23. I want you to notice the way in which Peter speaks. It's important. It's important because Peter is speaking as someone who was there. Someone 
who knew and had seen and had understood exactly what was taking place. And so he speaks with that authority, and we have no reason to doubt what he and John and the other apostles all had to say, or the Apostle Paul, and so on. Now, whilst the Scriptures do not mention Peter directly as being in the crowd at the foot of the cross, but it is reasonable to assume that he was with John, as we're then told in John's Gospel, that John and Peter were together at Caiaphas' house. Peter and John knew what had happened. They saw it. They heard it. And they report to us. So Peter speaks with authority. He knew that Calvary didn't catch Jesus by surprise. And I'm going to ask you if you would turn, please, uh, to uh, Matthew's Gospel and uh, chapter 16, verse 21. Matthew's Gospel, <clears throat> chapter 16, verse 21. In fact, a couple of verses we'll read here. And we read this. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer for many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Now, Peter at this point, he's worried. And maybe he's thinking to himself, but that means you'll fail. And maybe you're thinking that particular point at this moment. You're thinking to yourself, but this all ends in failure. So Peter said, then Peter took him aside. Could you imagine taking the Lord Jesus aside? Interesting words, eh? Lord, come over here. We've got to talk about this. I'm not happy. This isn't what, what I signed up for. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Rebuke the Lord Jesus Christ. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get Behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. For you're not mindful of the things of God. What was he mindful of? The things of men. What would you have done? What would I have done? The things of men. Years later... When Peter penned his first epistle, Peter called Jesus. What did he call him? He called him the lamb that was foreordained before the foundation of the world. What was the lamb in the Old Testament sacrificial system? It was the lamb that was sacrificed. And now, Jesus from before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the world, here he is. And he says... I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to suffer. But after three days, I'll rise again. 
And you and I rejoice in our salvation because of what took place at the cross. Could the scriptures be any clearer? No. The Apostle Paul also agrees with Peter that the cross was in the mind and the heart of God from the beginning. After all, if God had promised eternal life before time began, that's Titus chapter 1 verse 2, an interesting verse incidentally. And if he chooses us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 verse 4, and wrote our names in the book of life, Revelation 17 verse 8, then the great plan of salvation absolutely belongs to all eternity. There it is. It's not something that's been made up to correct errors that have taken place. This is the plan for all eternity. When Jesus came to earth, he knew that he came to die. See, reality, friends, and we've spoken about this on, on our Christmas, uh, no, not Christmas Eve, on the service before, on the Saturday. Jesus is the only person who chose to be born. You and I haven't chosen to be born. But Jesus chose to be born. So that puts him in a category all of his own. You and I were also not born to die. That was never the intention. But our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ chose to be born to die. And this is the gospel. And we need to understand it. Luke 24, 46, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus was not a victim of some murder plot that had been created. Yes, it's fair to say that the Pharisees had set out to try and kill him. But he willingly laid down his life. Who did he lay down his life for? Well, John 10, 15 to 18 tells us it was for the sheep. Who are the sheep? <laughs> Do I hear any bleating out here? <laughs> We're the sheep. And what a wonderful picture this is. Um, somebody sent me a message about some sheep running wild behind their house. Was it something to do with the bulks, I think? And, uh, and I, think, um, I think it was Joanne sent the message and said, now I know what you mean about sheep. They're always getting themselves into trouble. If a sheep can do it, it will do so. It will get itself stuck in places that you wouldn't believe a sheep could get itself stuck in. And that's us. But from the creation of the world, Jesus came and laid down his life for you and for me. So the atoning sacrifice of the Messiah was taught in the Old Testament, wasn't it, all the way through? If you've read the Old Testament, then you, this is not a surprise to you at all. If there's anybody from a Jewish background here, you will know intimately that the sacrificial system spoke about a sacrificial lamb and it was simply laying the foundation 
for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus perfectly understood the scriptures. He was Jewish. He knew the scriptures. The entire messianic sacrificial system and the priesthood that maintained it were types and pictures and shadows of the good things that were to come. Jesus knew what every Jewish person knew that the heart of the system was Leviticus 17, verse 11, which reads this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And in the announcement of his birth, Jesus declared that his incarnation gave to him a body that he would offer as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Therefore he came into the world. Hebrews 10 verses 5 to 7. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus gave himself as a burnt offering in total surrender to God as well as the sin offering to pay the price for our offenses against God. And I say this as gently as I possibly can. Friends, we're an offensive people. That's who we are. I want you to understand. You know, you might think that you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, as sinners go, you're pretty good. might put yourself at a 3. Some might even say a two. And you get a few people that say, I'm a nine. And then there's those that say, I'm a 12. But we're an offensive people. Because in God's sight, do we understand how terrible our sin is? It's offensive to him. And that's who we are. Now that helps us to understand the love that was demonstrated and shown at the cross. He knew it was the way for the sin of mankind to be dealt with. He knew that the cross was the will of his Father and he did his Father's will. And I close this evening by looking at an event that at the time, and it's recorded for us in the Scriptures, that at the time only Jesus understood. It's quite apparent as we look at it. In fact, there were many people watching it. There were many people listening to what was taking place. But only our Lord Jesus fully understood it. And that, of course, was the baptism of Jesus himself as he steps down into the Jordan. Well, first of all, he comes to John, who's been baptizing people, a baptism of repentance, and he says to John, I want to be baptized. And John, first of all, stands back, and he's, he says, I'm having none of this. Lord, it's me that needs to be baptized, because John knew that Jesus was sinless. There was no repentance that was necessary. So why would he be baptized? Well, as we begin to look at that baptism, we discover that the baptism there equals the cross here. And so what took place at that baptism at the beginning of our Lord's ministry explained the cross. And in our baptism as believers, and believers' baptism is so important, 
we begin to understand that we are united with him in his suffering, in his resurrection, in his burial. But at the time, only our Lord understood it. John the Baptist knew that Jesus was sinless. But Jesus knew that his baptism was his Father's will. Permit it to be so now, our Lord said to John. For thus, in this manner, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew 3 and verse 15. Now we read these words carefully. Perhaps we read them too casually, maybe. Because without realizing it, these words actually raise some difficult questions for us. The first one you might never have thought of. But to whom does the pronoun us refer to? Again, if you have your Bible, we've got a few minutes. Let's turn, and then we're nearly done. Let's turn to Matthew 3 and verse 15. <clears throat> In fact, I'll read from verse 13, if I may. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. So we can see the intention of the Lord Jesus is very clear. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. To whom did the pronoun us refer? Did it include John? Well, if it did, that presents loads of other problems. Because how could a sinful man, John, help a holy God fulfill all righteousness? He couldn't. Now, there are certain Christian cults that believe that Jesus was no more than a man. He wasn't God. Jehovah Witnesses are an example of this. But whenever you come across a cult, you'll always discover the place they fail and fall down on is the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, is he God? You see, Jesus, and I think it was Albert who explained this, Jesus was fully God and fully man. The solution is to forget John and to note that the entire Godhead was involved in this important event. God the Father spoke from heaven, God the Son went down into the water, and God the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus as the dove. The us is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of course, in the way illustrated in the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, we understand that death, burial, and resurrection is the picture of what took place at the cross. 
Jesus used baptism as a picture of his passion. Luke, 15, uh, uh, Luke 11, verse 50, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. And of course, we know in other scriptures that our Lord identified himself with the experience of Jonah, for example, Matthew 12, 38, Luke eleven thirty, And again, we see the image of death, burial, and resurrection as Jonah is swallowed by a big fish. Wasn't a pleasant thing, was it? But it spoke of death, burial, and then he spat out on the beach, resurrection. In other words, as Jesus began his public ministry, he gave witness of the fact that he had come to die for the sins of the world. And the sign our Lord gave was the sign that was given to the wicked people of Nineveh, death, burial, and resurrection. So Jesus knew what was ahead. And as he headed for the cross, all he could do was see the sin and need of the world, of people in the world. And his love drove him to the cross for our salvation. And so, it now comes down to you. Do you recognize the cross as the solution for your problem of sin, for your separation from God? Or do you think it was the mark of failure and it'll do nothing for me? All have sinned, the Bible tells us, and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that all of us need to be rescued all of us need salvation. We need to be rescued from sin and from separation from God. And so this evening I close by pleading with you to recognize the cross for what it is. It's the bridge between man and God. And the arms of the cross stretch out across that void which has separated us. Our Lord Jesus Christ set the example in his baptism. It was commanded of God that he was baptized. And he was explaining clearly what was to happen. And when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you repent of your sin, there's a commandment in Scripture which is to be baptized because you're then demonstrating and showing and understanding what it is that's happened to you. You have died with Christ. You have been buried with Christ. And you've been raised to life in Christ Jesus. And so this evening at the beginning of this new year, I urge you to consider these things carefully. Next time you're putting that cross over your, your head, 
think about what it means and give thanks to God for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross.